We must constantly look at things in a different way. The Healthcare Education Transformation Podcast was created by two physical therapists out of the desire to learn more about the different educational roles in physical therapy and healthcare and how healthcare education works by talking with educational leaders and people with different perspectives within physical therapy and across interdisciplinary lines on how education can be improved to disrupt the status quo of healthcare education. This is our journey and thanks for listening. Are you a third-year physical therapy student that excels on tests when you have study guides, checklists, and deadlines? With all of the information available about how to prepare for the NPTE, it's easy to get disorganized and not feel prepared going into the big day. NPTE Prep Success is an online course that provides PT students easy-to-use study guides and step-by-step guidance through the NPTE preparation. To learn more, visit kylericeprep.com. Thank you again all for your continued support. And now for the show. Hello, everybody, and welcome to another episode of the Healthcare Education Transformation Podcast. I'm one of your hosts, Dr. F. Scott Feel, and I am joined by a very special guest today. We've kind of done some back and forth on Twitter for quite some time, and I'm I'm glad to finally have him in here because we're going to be talking a little bit about gross anatomy, which is really one of the foundations between a lot of healthcare providers and, and the healthcare education that they go through. So I'd like to introduce Dr. Mike Pasco. Mike, Tell us a little bit about your academic journey and how it landed you where you are today. Yeah, sure thing, Scott. Thanks for having me. And I am super excited to talk about anatomy anytime. So the way I got to anatomy was, you know, I took anatomy as an undergraduate student, had a great time, became an undergraduate teaching assistant, got into graduate school, and then I became a graduate teaching assistant. So I already had a lot of fun in the anatomy lab. And this was at the University of Colorado in Boulder. And by the time I was in grad school, I was on the path to becoming a neuroscience PhD. So after the master's came the PhD, I stayed in the same lab. I'm one of those people people that found a good thing, stayed with the same PI, Dr. Roger Anoka. Uh, He is still in the Department of Integrative Physiology today, got the PhD all sorted out. And, you know, as I was getting ready to defend, there was a job posting for the University of Colorado at the medical campus, which is in Aurora. So about, you know, 30 miles away from Boulder. And my wife strongly encouraged me to uh, interview. I almost turned the, the interview down. And so my better half said, you know, you got to check this out. So I interviewed, uh, they gave me an offer. So I was looking at either postdoc in neuroscience or starting a faculty position teaching anatomy. And anatomy has been my love, my passion, my strong interest since a young age. So I started in 2011 at the Anschutz campus. And that's kind of how I got to where I am today. And now it's 10 years later. And uh, I've risen through the ranks and it's just been a very exciting journey. And now I would just say that I'm really, really in a good spot right now. Things are are just clicking right along. And that's how I got to become an anatomy professor. Yeah, that's awesome. I mean, it seems to me, and you can correct me if I'm wrong, but it seems like gross anatomy as a class generally needs help. It needs uh, lab assists all the time. It needs instructors. You know, they're hard to come by. It's hard to find a good anatomy professor. Um, So I generally tell people if they're looking to, you know, get started and maybe teach an adjunct course or help as a lab assist or something like that, that gross anatomy could be a good kind of a foray into teaching if they want to maybe start teaching. Would you say that that's true or, or what do you see with gross anatomy as a class? 
Yeah, I agree. And I actually will point you to a research paper by my colleagues that did a comprehensive survey, and they found that there is a nationwide shortage of qualified anatomy instructors. So if you're thinking about starting a PhD program for anatomy education, you're you're going to have students that are going to want to flood in there and get started. And then you'll definitely have a lot of opportunity to teach in the anatomy world for sure. And we're talking about healthcare professions. We're talking about teaching in the basic sciences. Master's degree programs are going to need instructors. So I definitely agree. And I've definitely seen this in my teaching at the University of Colorado in the physical therapy program. You're absolutely right. It is a huge effort. Anatomy is usually a five or six credit hour behemoth of a course. So you're absolutely right. We need lots of adjunct faculty to help out in the lab to, to share the load of lecture development. And then we have a small army of teaching assistants as well. So I definitely agree with your perspective, Scott, that anatomy is a great place to get started and it's a great way to get your foot in the door for sure. Yeah. And, you know, I was an English major coming out of Wake Forest University. And when I eventually got to East Carolina University to start the master's in physical therapy program there, gross anatomy was one of the first courses we had to take. And it was a bit of a shock for me, I will admit, uh, you know, day one, you know, looking over the cadaver and just kind of sneaking a peek over the corner of the table there, I, uh, it was a rude awakening, you know, between the, the smell of formaldehyde and the, uh, the shock that, okay, wow, yeah, that is a human body. You know, it, it, there is a little bit of a sticker shock there for somebody who's maybe not, you know, been involved in sciences before. All the anatomy courses I took to get in there were, you know, we used pigs and cats and, uh, you know, di diagrams and stuff and virtual uh, but, but really getting into an anatomy lab can be a little bit shocking. It's a bit of a wake-up call, and it's generally the first course you take in a lot of these medical professional education systems. So, you know, how do you handle that with students that are just kind of, you know, this is day one and class one, and you're dealing with cadavers? You know, how, how do you handle that and ease them into that situation? Man, that is, I'm so glad we're touching on this. So I am in week four of my first year anatomy course with the, the physical therapy students. And you are absolutely right that this is a strong consideration. And that's why I love anatomy as a, as a discipline, as a content area, because yes, there's anatomy. Yes, there's this muscle attaches here and causes this action. There's also the, the added layers of bioethics, uh, professional development, communication. It's all there and it's all beautiful. And so what we actually have been able to do in our curriculum is we have the first two dissection lab sessions. And I should say two sessions because we split our class of about 70 students into a group A and a group B. So after each of those groups have their first dissection experience, we recognize that there are a lot of reactions and a lot of strong emotions. Some people, some of our students, our young adults have never seen a dead body before. So we have a lot to unpack. And so what we get to do is we get to have a professional development session that, that, are, that are led by my colleagues in the PT program, and they invite me to participate. And it is such a privilege because I get to go into these small group sessions. We give them a writing prompt. Many students choose the writing prompt, write a letter to your donor explaining what you're doing with their donation. And it gets very emotional. And so the main advice I give is to educators and to students is that every possible reaction that a student, that a person has to that experience is valid and is acceptable. You get the whole range of reactions. 
Uh, some of them you have to curtail a little bit because they may not be professional, but we still challenge our students to have self-reflection, have some introspection, think about what this gift means. And we try to do that early on in the experience. And then we have opportunity in the spring after it's kind of like the conclusion of the academic year, right? So all of the students on the campus that have used donors in their anatomical studies, we have a donor memorial ceremony. So you've just really struck something really dear to my heart. And it's just, it's amazing. And that's why the job will never get stale for me because I've seen 500 donors and I know what my reaction is around this experience. But when I get to see 70 other individuals and their reactions be um, part of that and privileged enough to share in that with them, it is really exciting. And I almost forget about it every year, but then we have this session and I'm like, wait a minute, this is really difficult for a lot of people. And that is completely acceptable. Yeah. Now I will say this after day two or day three, I got pretty comfortable pretty quick. You know, I put my big boy pants on and I really looked at it as a, a task that I had to perform every day in order to get better and to learn. And, you know, I, I enjoyed it. When I came out, by the time I was done, it was hands down the hardest course I've ever taken in my life. The most difficult course, like you said, it is a behemoth of a course. And I think ours was five credits. It was definitely the most difficult course I've ever taken, but at the same time, it was the most rewarding. And in hindsight, after I finished the, it was a master's program when I went through it, but we were offered an, an additional year to stick around to complete the transitional doctorate, which is a whole nother story. But when I finished the program, looking back, I almost wish I was able to take it again later on in the curriculum as well, because it was that informational, it was that transformational. And it really did give me, you know, what I felt like was the foundation of everything I needed to know about the human body. Like it really was that well worth it. As a professor and a teacher of anatomy, what are some of the things that you're trying to instill in these students? Because it is their first semester, their first year, you know, a lot of times it's an intro type course. So what are some of the big themes and the common takeaways that you're trying to instill in these students? Yeah, that can be taken a couple different ways. It can be taken from the content perspective and then from this underlying like hidden curriculum, if you will. So starting with the content, I really just try to repeat several mantras uh, as we go through the course. I call them like core principles because I know they're gonna be with the patient someday and it may be a very, uh, very rare, very minuscule, like very niche type of situation where they're gonna need to call upon some very specific anatomy. And I'm a realist and I know that not every healthcare professional has the attachments of the Anconius you know, at the tip of their tongue. So I just try to give them these core principles. So when they are in a tight spot, they can do some deduction, right? They know that, okay, well, muscles only pull. And I remember the Anconius is an extensor of the forearm. So therefore it must go from the lateral epicondyle, something like the humerus to the ulna, something like that. So that can help them add to their hypothesis list of what could be causing this pain at the posterior elbow. So there's that kind of thing where I think my approach is, repeat these core principles and these mantras. And then what we do after we get those core principles down is they, they surface in every region of the body. Muscles only pull. That's true in the abdomen. That's true in the pelvic floor. That's true in the forearm. And then from the other kind of, you know, more hidden curriculum perspective and kind of skills that I try to instill in them for, you know, the rest of their career is definitely curiosity. And I really like to promote critical thinking. So I, it's really amazing. And I have to give credit to my colleagues for this, that they have it, 
come up with the whole idea that differential diagnosis that starts in anatomy. And you know, me as a basic scientist, I didn't really know that's what I was trying to teach my students to do in anatomy, but they're absolutely doing that. They're doing differential diagnosis when they're trying to identify structures. So promoting curiosity, the critical thinking skills, and then being a lifelong learner. One of the biggest stigmas behind anatomy is that it, it never changes and it hasn't changed for a thousand years, but we are making discoveries about the way that structures function all the time. And so students need to be hungry for that and they need to be curious to read at least the abstract of a recent, uh, very highly cited clinical anatomy page, like lymphatic vessels and nodes have been found in the brain. The mantra for centuries has been, there's no lymphatics in the CNS. But not too long ago, a group came out with these findings. And yeah, a lot of the times popular media will pick up on these stories and sensationalize them. But you know, all these healthcare professionals, including PTs, they need to be able to appraise these uh, headlines and be able to translate that and see how it relates to patient care. So to answer your question for the, the other kind of hidden deeper curricular issues. Yeah, you touched on a lot of key points there, Mike, and I want to go back and kind of touch on them again a little bit here. But one, one of the, the key takeaways, I think, like you said, is critical thinking. And, you know, for me, I'm surprised that students get as far along as they do in their programs without some form of critical thinking, you know, like for me, I didn't really understand that I had, I was, I was obviously doing some form of critical thinking in undergrad to get into grad school. And then, so, you know, beyond that, but I, I didn't realize how important critical thinking was and that we actually had to practice it and really implement things to get better at it. And that didn't come until probably, you know, 2018 or so when I finished my EDD, then I, I knew a little bit more about how we learn, how we think, you know, and how we can teach and educate. Um, you know, so I think the critical thinking aspect of things is phenomenal that you're starting it that early, because I, I really do think that, especially as physical therapists, by the time we finish and graduate, there has to be some form of, of critical thinking and clinical thinking, um, you know, and, and it's nice to start it that early in anatomy. Um, one of the other things too that, that you kind of talked about was, you know, I, I was kind of a rote memorization guy. I just thought I could memorize the muscles and the origins and insertions and I'd be fine. And I just kept trying to do that and do that and do that. Well, in hindsight, once again, I finished the EDD and looking back, I really should have been focusing more on the thought process and, and you know, trying to deduct you know, what, what I was looking at and how it could function. That seems like a much more easy way to, you know, actually learn about the body and, and the anatomy. So I think that, you know, as a tip for students uh, that are taking gross anatomy now, you know, think about the bigger picture. I think if you, if you take that 30,000 foot view, you know, and you kind of think through, like you said, some of the actions and the origins and insertions, you can kind of deduce what, what's doing what and where. But what are some key tips and key tricks that you, you've learned over the years that you can kind of teach or tell educators who are looking to maybe become uh, gross anatomy professors or want to try to dip their toes in the water of teaching and, and gross anatomy is going to be their thing? What are some tips and tricks that you can tell them when it comes to educating? Well, for me, it was definitely the first step is to look at what you know and what you don't know about teaching. And I had a very obvious gap in what I did not know. And so I, and when, you know, what I found is when you become a faculty member, they're essentially 
are some level of mentoring and some level of professional development pathways you can take, but ultimately it's up to you, right? You determine your own future. So nobody really told me what to do. I kind of had to survey the landscape and say, okay, what do I really not know about? And what do I need to be better at? I saw my colleagues really excelling at course design, curricular development. And I was kind of looking for an opportunity to do that because I did not have doctoral training in how to teach. That's something you'll hear all the time is, I'm a teacher, but I never had a course on how to teach. Well, that, you know, that statement is only going to get you so far because at least in my experience, there are some excellent online as well as in-person brick and mortar, you know, ways to gain these skills. And so I found, I was fortunate enough, we have something called the Teaching Scholars Program. We have an Academy of Medical Educators. So you may want to look for such terminology at your university and you want to look for curriculum development, course design, um, instructional design, and you want to just make sure you know where your gaps are. And I really, my courses really became more enjoyable to teach once I had a better understanding of pedagogy, about various um, strategies and uh, teaching methods. And so it was just great to learn more about instructional alignment, for example, how writing really good learning objectives is going to really help you and your learners identify what they need to be able to do because I tell my students, I never want them to use the K word in my class. The K word is no. What do we need to know about the upper extremity, Pasco? And, like, and I just start to cringe and I say, guys, you, you, we're not gonna do the no word because how do you know? How do you measure knowledge? How do you know when you know? So instead what we're gonna do is we're gonna have, for this lecture, we're gonna have these you know, 12 things that you need to be able to do. And then I tell the students, well, how are you not gonna have an anxiety attack before the exam? What if the objective was know the anatomy of the upper extremity? I mean, I don't even think I know the anatomy of the upper extremity, right? And I've been doing this for 10 years. So if I have something in front of me that is called be able to draw the brachial plexus and its 16 peripheral branches, now I can tackle that. I either can do that or I can't do that. And the instructional alignment comes into play because then I use those objectives to guide my assessment. So your assessments become less of a black box anxiety attack of, oh my gosh, what is PASCO going to ask on this exam? And it becomes more of a, okay, if I know how to do these things, I'll be confident going into the exam. So it really helps me write very good assessments and good examinations. And then it also informs how I teach. That's the third part of this golden triangle of education with instructional alignment. Your learning objectives dictate how you teach. So being able to draw the brachial plexus is on my objectives, I go through a drawing with them in the live learning session that we do. So I already feel like that's a, a pretty lengthy answer and I think I'll stop there, but that's one kind of tip there. You gotta try to figure out where your gaps are. You have to dig into the literature and see how people are teaching. And in anatomy, there's a very robust anatomy education community and they are very happy to point you to resources. There are excellent journal articles out there that take very good connection between teaching and learning theory into anatomy. And then you have to seek out how you're going to you know, attain those skills. And for me, it's been so rewarding because I can really see 
how it serves the students. And I, I just think they benefit from it so much. Yeah, that's awesome. And that's actually a perfect lead into my next question. Let's flip the script a little and talk about the students aspect of things, right? What are some of the tips and tricks or, or things that you've learned over the years that help students learn when it comes to gross anatomy? What are some things that they should be thinking about when trying to learn gross anatomy? I think I'm going to keep it broad and I'm going to say they have to understand how learning works, which sounds crazy. I don't, I'm not telling the students to go get a psychology degree, a cognitive neuroscience degree. That, that doesn't make sense. But fortunately, if you go to an excellent website, learning scientists, that's plural, learningscientists.org, they break down the cognitive uh, neuroscience into six effective strategies for learning. So students, you cannot assume what got you through undergrad is going to get you through physical therapy school. So it's almost like you have to clean the slate and you have to evaluate your study strategies. And the punchline is you have to drop passive strategies that feel like an easy victory, like highlighting, reading your PowerPoint slides, reading your textbook. That is not effective. That is not going to move the information into your brain. You have to flip over to those active processes and those active processes come in several key strategies that are outlined for you at learningscientist.org. And I, every, we just had our first anatomy exam and I guarantee in office hours this week, it's gonna be all about how's your retrieval practice? How's your dual coding? How's your elaboration? And I actually, for the first year, I put all of these strategies together in a recorded lecture specific for anatomy at the request of the admissions committee. Can we please give this incoming students some of these strategies to think about right now. So that way they can start to put these strategies together and employ them as soon as we get started with anatomy. So we'll see how the first round of exams go. We'll see what those office hour discussions are like. I already had one today uh, where the learner was talking about spending several hours trying to perfect a concept where the theory of interleaving says, you're gonna wanna take several interrelated concepts and you're going to want to study them in like 30 minute increments. Don't do three hours of brachial plexus. Do 30 minute objectives where we're talking about the innervation of the upper extremity, the attachments of the muscles. You start to build a schema. You start to attack it from different angles and it is more difficult and I don't want to do it because when I draw the brachial plexus the first time, I can only draw 30% of it. And if I look at the brachial plexus answer key, then I know that I've got it down. Well, do you really? So that's what I would say to students. Definitely challenge your study strategies. Reconsider what got you through undergraduate is not going to help you, probably not going to help you unless you had a cognitive neuroscience <laughs> undergraduate degree. Then, you know, you're going to have to reconsider your study strategies because PT school essentially is cumulative, right? All these healthcare profession degree programs are cumulative. They don't just throw classes in for the fun of it when you're becoming a clinician. Like you are only given what is gonna help you become a good clinician. So let's start to address this in the first semester. Yeah, I think you hit the nail on the head there, Mike. Like I said, I, I didn't know how to study when I got to grad school. I didn't know how to study, truth be told, until after grad school, once I went through the EDD. And you know, I, I really wish that I had been able to go through undergrad even again, because I worked my tail off in undergrad just to make Bs. You know, I was a straight B student. Um, and I, I used a lot of the same strategies in undergrad as I did in grad school. And again, that didn't get me as far, you know, and, and so 
it was a struggle for me. It really was. And I think, uh, you know, learning now to just, you know, put some of those strategies aside and, and start from scratch and, and relearn how to learn is definitely a great tip and a great pointer for, for students in general, not just anatomy students, but uh, graduate students in general. Well, Mike, you're also involved in a lot of other cool things, kind of anatomy adjacent, if you will. I've seen a lot of the stuff you've been doing on Twitter and you know, I love some of the, the the stuff you've been working on lately. Tell our audience a little bit about some of that stuff that you do that involves anatomy, but is is only loosely related. Yeah, I, I could take that a couple of different directions. So I will say that if you're a professional out there and you haven't strongly considered using Twitter to promote your your work, you really need to take a look at it because Twitter is way out of its infancy at this point. And it's a very well-established way to message what you're all about and who you are. And that's definitely what connected Scott and I uh, together today. So a lot of opportunities have come my way and there's a lot of good resources out there on professional networking. And one little tip I would give is really strongly consider getting on Twitter surrounding your professional conferences, whether it's ELC or APTA, um, CSM. You know, those are some very good opportunities to connect with people. I follow a lot of people and get a lot of connection with people during conferences. And then I also can take that, um, Scott, the direction of what's another major area of my faculty position and what's my scholarly activity. So I definitely share a lot of my research progress through Twitter. And I definitely have been moving through um, a very productive line of scholarly work as I'm trying to basically figure out how do these um, internet-based tools either augment or support anatomy students in being able to impact their learning outcomes. So I've definitely seen a progression in my research that, that's gone initially from that, that, um, that Kirkpatrick level one, which is, do students just even like the technology? Like what's their satisfaction? Now a lot of my work pushes into that second level of the Kirkpatrick model, and that is, is it affecting their outcomes? So I've been able to run projects on things like, what are the web browsing habits of students when they're in the anatomy lab? Do students' grades benefit when they have a profession-specific digital dissection guide? That was a really fun project. Turns out when you do construct a, a well-put-together uh, digital document that the students can access, they did significantly better on their exams. This is for the lower extremity. I'm sure that the same would translate to other regions. So I get to do all these different research projects. That's It's like double dipping, right? I get to have credit toward my research and my scholarly activity, but my anatomy teaching benefits as well. Uh, what about students putting together all these awesome diagrams and learning resources? Why should those sit on their hard drives when they can be put on a wiki? So we, we published on the use of uh, wikis in education. I have worked with Eric Robertson on the idea of what is what is live blogging look like at a, uh, a professional conference. That was a very well-received format for disseminating information for people that couldn't be at the conference. So conference planners should definitely be looking at live blogging. And then I get to do some real cool research with people at other universities about variations in anatomy. So we got to do a cool project at Colorado State where uh, we looked at the, the amount of insta the incidence of third head of biceps brachii. And most of the literature was saying that men or male donors have a higher incidence of a third head of biceps brachii. We found in our sample that women had a higher incidence, the female donors. So there's always this constant, you know, counting and checking of what we can find in our donors. And there's endless 
work that can be done on anatomical variations. Definitely have published on innovative photography use in the anatomy lab. So what's it like to be able to change the focal point of a photo after it's taken? I don't know if you've looked at uh, any donor-based photos lately, but usually the photographer has to pick like one area of focus and everything in the periphery gets blurry. Well, we know that experts spend more time zoomed out scanning the field and novices zoom in right away and they spend more time zoomed in. Well, I think that those donor photographs are kind of promoting that. So we've definitely looked at that. And then the, the, the last three, oh man, there's so many cool projects, Scott. I've got uh, manuscripts under review right now on the effectiveness of serving as an anatomy lab teaching assistant on the step one uh, licensure examination for medical students. So be looking for those results coming out soon. And then that teaching scholars project or program that I mentioned earlier, it ends in a capstone project. So the capstone project was, for me, was to look at the gap that exists in a core syllabus for anatomy objectives for physical therapists. So there's a lot of ways of approaching that question. In medicine, what they've done is they've had a bunch of anatomy experts do a Delphi approach where they basically send rounds and rounds of surveys. What are the most important? What's the need to know anatomy to be a physician? Well, I wanted to actually approach it from a reverse perspective. I wanted faculty, recent graduates, and clinical instructors to take the objectives that I've written, and I had them rate the learning objectives. And so now I know with a high degree of confidence what objectives I need to include in my anatomy course for PT students. And like I was teaching, be able to describe fetal circulation. And across the board, my group said, you do not, that is not essential. You do not need to go there. Be able to name all 10 bronchopulmonary segments. For entry-level physical therapists, that is not something that is need to know. That's like nice to know, but it's definitely not need to know. And then the last one, I was able to find that if I was able to give students mini review sessions using Snapchat, they actually did better on their exam on that content. So I was reviewing blood flow, talking through, you're a blood cell, what vessels do you pass through? And by doing that, the group that used Snapchat got better uh, results on that question. So Scott, when you, when you open the door there to talk about my other anatomy tangent, experiences. I'm just so excited because I've got this really excellent line of work going and there's just so many amazing opportunities. And I started off doing this by myself, but now I'm working with more and more colleagues across the country. And it's just so exciting to work with my colleagues and just to learn from them and to just be able to teach our students better. So that's, that's what I have to contribute there. Yeah, no, I, I definitely, like I said, I, I followed a lot of your stuff on Twitter and I, I saw a lot of your Snapchat content too. And I, I love that kind of stuff. You know, that that's how I learn anyway. That, a lot of my, my most recent learning is through a, a lot of social media and a lot of uh, technology advancements. So I'm not great at technology. I'm not bad. You know, I, I can survive, but I definitely love using it. I mean, I love learning with it. So you know, I think these new generations of students are, you know, if used appropriately, are really going to benefit from a lot of these uh, things you're doing, a lot of the publications you've got out there. So I'm excited to see uh, what's to come 
But Mike, we like to ask every one of our guests this one final question. If you could change one aspect of higher education, whether it be DPT or otherwise, what aspect would you change and how would you change it? Yeah, you know, there are a lot of critiques of higher education for sure. And there are certainly a lot of debates within physical therapy education about things like, should a residency be mandatory? I'm going to try to stick in my wheelhouse because I tell my students, I am not a clinician. So anytime I start to wax clinical, you know that it's purely speculative and I'll have to defer to my wife on a lot of these clinical questions. I've also got great clinical faculty uh, on the anatomy staff that, that can help out. So I guess for anatomy education and what I would like, oh, this is a big, 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 big one. This, this has to change. So we are seeing such a, a much needed emphasis on what is going on around people of color and their representation in society. So we have got to get our anatomy educational resources up to date and up to speed because unfortunately where we are as a society is that the white male is normal anatomy. So when I look at my textbooks, except for very few examples, we have white males that are shown in our anatomy books. And a lot of them are very, uh, you know, fit, very hypermuscular. And I totally understand why that's appealing. But we are sending a message to our students. We're ultimately sending a message to our patients uh, and our colleagues that the white male is normal anatomy. And we need some more representation. We need to have some more resources out there. Because I'm telling you, when I try to find some imagery, when I'm doing my surface anatomy, when I'm doing my overview of the limbs, I mean, I'm very limited, I'm very restricted. And it's very interesting to carry that concept forward into the anatomy lab. I would really like to explore why it seems like most of our donors are white individuals. And I'm just doing a lot of work myself on, you know, what, what it means to, to be white and all the privilege that comes with that, how I've gotten where I've gotten, mainly because I'm a white male and how other people have been marginalized in order for me to have that privilege. So. It is my responsibility to incorporate that into my teaching. And if I don't see something you know, available in the next year, I really think it will be a great project. We've got some modern human anatomy students at my university. It'd be a great project for them to just work on getting some you know, audio visual representation of people of color because that just, that needs to change in higher education. That's where my mind is right now, Scott. Yeah, I think, you know, now is as good a time as ever. There's been a lot of talk, especially on Twitter, about the, the issues in the physical therapy realm when it comes to diversity. And that goes for, you know, students as well as patients, you know? So I, I think that that's, that's definitely a great take. And I think that's something that, that would be a worthwhile uh, venture down the line. Well, Mike, it's been an absolute pleasure talking with you. I can't thank you enough for taking your time to come on and just kind of educate our audience about all things anatomy. And, you know, I'm sure they've gotten a lot out of it. Where, where can people find you and reach out to you if they've got uh, follow-up questions or they just want to check out and see what you're up to these days? I finally got my, my marketing act together, if you will. I don't know if you've seen that platform Linktree. Linktree is just, I don't know what it, what it was, but it's very basic. It's just a way for you to list all of your presences across the internet. And I've had MikePasco.com for a while. And all I'm doing now is I'm forwarding MikePasco.com to my Linktree and you're gonna get everything from my, oh, it's professional, right? So you're gonna get my all my professional social media presence 
And then I'm also trying to do a good job of promoting my work because that's what my promotions committee is going to look at and, and evaluate me on as well. So I'm going to have all of the links to my recent publications. And so the way you get there is M-I-K-E, P-A-S-C-O-E. Sometimes people forget the E, that's okay. MikePasco.com and that's where you'll find my stuff and how to connect with me, Scott. Awesome. We'll put the links to that in the show notes so everybody can get there very easily. Mike, again, can't thank you enough for your time and for coming on and chatting with us tonight. It's been an absolute pleasure. Hey, thanks for the opportunity. I had a great time, Scott, and I completely endorse your podcast and I'm looking forward to catching up on the episodes that have come before and that will follow. Thanks. Awesome. Thank you. Access to healthcare is one of the largest issues facing both providers and patients as millions of people worldwide lack timely and affordable access to healthcare. Anywhere Healthcare, a telehealth platform, is a simple, low-cost option for providers and patients that eliminates the barriers to access to all kinds of healthcare. To find out more, check out anywhere.healthcare, which is available on our show notes. And if you use the code HET in all caps when you email to sign up, you'll save 25% off the total cost. Thank you for attending class today, and we hope that you learned something and gained value from the content. If you'd like to schedule office hours with us, feel free to add us on Twitter at HET Podcast, on Instagram, HET Podcast, on Facebook, the Healthcare Education Transformation Podcast, and the homepage, Healthcare Education Transformation Podcast.com. And for those of you following along in the syllabus, extra credit can be obtained by liking us, sharing us, and leaving a review. Let's continue our journey up Mount Educational Success as lifelong learners.